So Genesis uh, chapter 19. Um, I don't know if you've heard the news, but uh, recently uh, there was this report about a judge in in U.S. and from Texas who beat his wife, uh, well, beat his daughter with a belt. And, And this daughter planted a camera in her room so that she could document it and show it to the world. And when the video went viral and um, it, it, there obviously was this outrage, how could this man serve as a judge when his character seems so flawed? Well, we can ask a similar question about Lot as well. Lot on the surface is a good man. And as two angels arrive in Sodom in the evening, Lot extends a similar sort of hospitality that his uh, uh, uncle Abraham had offered to the angels. He greets them, bows down to them, calls them his Lord, asks them to come in and wash their feet and rest and eat with him. And when they decline, in verse 3, they, he strongly insists that he comes in. And so far, so good, and he seems like a good man. But everything goes awry in just a couple of few uh, uh, verses later, just around the bedtime, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And the narrator, narrator really emphasizes the fact that this is everyone, every man, in every part, from every part of the city, and um, uh, young and old, at every age, they come. And the city is completely corrupt, is the emphasis here. And they come basically to commit a homosexual gang rape. And that is as bad as that sounds. It's not just rape, it's homosexual rape. It's not just going to be committed by a few number of people, but every man from that town. And Lot does go out to protect them, protect them. He goes out, he shuts the door behind, and he calls them, his friends, and tries to coax them out of doing this wicked deed. Verse 7, my friends, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. He offers his daughters instead that the guests might be spared. I think their response is very interesting. In uh, see verse 9, this fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge? It's a fair question, I think. Um, if you're, um, what they're asking is, you're not one of us. You're not part of this town. You don't even know what uh, this, this, uh, how, how things work around here. How can you be the judge? Clearly, Lot thinks that what they're doing is wrong. So let's ask the first question of well, who can be the judge? Can Lot, is Lot qualified uh, to be a judge? It seems to me at least three criteria has to be met, have to be met. First, first, that person needs to know the culture. And this is hinted at the objection. Lot, um, they call Lot an alien, a foreigner. Um, a person who doesn't know who they are and what their, what their culture is like. And it's annoying, I know from, uh, I'm sure you know from experience, when foreigners come into your land and call you ignorant and call you wrong in all the things that you do. And I believe in absolute morality, but to a larger, uh, large extent, culture determines what practices are acceptable and what practices are not acceptable. And if you are a complete outsider of that culture, how can you come in and say you, uh, what you're doing is completely wrong? Do you really have the right to judge when you're a complete outsider? 
But paradoxically, I think, so you need to be a, a bit of an insider. But paradoxically, I think you also need to be an outsider as well. You need to be in the culture, but also outside of that culture too. And that, I think, is the second criterion. They must be objective and be able to see the culture, the value systems of, a, of that culture. And in some ways, foreigners can see the culture better than the people inside of that culture. And that's why when the people come in from outside, they bring a different perspective and they bring a, 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 a value system that's different. They, they're able to see that culture a bit more clearly. Um, and in some way, uh, and, and uh, it goes without saying that actually uh, when we are mired in our sin, um, we then get callous to the sin and we don't know how to, uh, we lose our sense of right and wrong. So, in a way, Lot is in a good position to perhaps be a judge because he was an immigrant. He seems to be the only one in the city who thinks what they're about to do is egregiously wrong. And thirdly, the judge has to be a morally upright person, not stained by the sins that he's supposed to judge. The Texan judge that I talked about, well, he lost his moral moral authority when he beat his wife and kids. And at this point, Lot doesn't seem all that qualified to be a judge of the mob either. He offers his daughters to the mob. In what culture is that acceptable? Some commentators want to excuse Lot by saying that the obligation of hospitality is so, um, uh, it's, a, it's sacrosanct that he's trying to protect that obligation. But it seems to me this is an inexcusable act. In no culture should this be acceptable. Actually, the fact that Lot is basically, we, we haven't read this, but towards the end of the chapter, verses 30 and on, Lot is basically raped by his daughters, daughters at the end of the story. And, and, and this almost seems like poetic justice, that he offers his daughters to these strangers, but in the end, he himself gets judged in this way. In any case, Lot seems he shouldn't be a judge. He's disqualified as the judge because he himself is sinful. He himself has lost a sense of right and wrong. This fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play the judge? Who can judge then? And do you remember the question that Abraham asked last week in 18 verses, uh, chapter 18, verse 25? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Do what is just. That is the ringing um, line that, that, that runs across last week's um, text, but also this week's text. Will not the judge of all people, all the earth, do what is right? Abraham is right in saying that God is the judge of all people on earth. In fact, um, uh, he's the only, uh, only person who can carry out justice, who can actually judge as the righteous judge. More specifically, it's his son, Jesus, who can judge all people. Jesus says, um, as we confess each, each week in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus, we confess that Jesus will come back as the judge of the living and the dead. And Jesus is uniquely qualified to be that judge. First, he is an insider. He, he has lived in the culture. He has become a human being. Letter to the Hebrews tells us that a human being, as a human being, he was tempted in every way. 
We cannot say to God as God judges us through Christ, you don't know what it's, li- what it's like to face injustice. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's li- like to, to in- encounter gross injustice on-, on earth. He knows what it's like to be angry, to face anger like that, to face betrayal, to face violence and insults. Jesus knows completely what it's like to be a human being. He knows what it's like to be a human being because he has been one. So he's inside. But secondly, he's also the outside of that culture too, isn't he? Because he's a human being, but he's also God. He not only sees our stories, he has an objective and complete perspective over every situation. As the second person of the Trinity. He can stand above our myopic vision and situations and weigh everything properly. Since he's not limited by time, space or intelligence. So he's in, but he's also out at the same time. And thirdly, he qualifies because he's without sin. He's tempted in every way, but without sin. You know, we often say, you know, when we point our fingers uh, to people, then three, three fingers point back to us. I think Jesus must point this way. <laughs> there can't be no fingers pointing back to him. There are no condemnatory fingers pointing back to him. He has the right to judge because he is holy and righteous and no one can say to him, you did this too. Of course, this passage isn't explicitly about who can judge. But last week, God announced to Abraham that God will bring a judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And this judgment serves as a warning for a bigger judgment that is to come. If you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. It's a fairly long passage. So Luke chapter 17. We're going to read from verses 27. Luke chapter 17. 27 to 33. It's on page 742. Where he talks about judgment. Jesus talks about judgment. And this is what he says about Sodom. Verse 27. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of the house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Um, there are actually a lot of parallels between this story and the uh, flood story as well. Flood story, Sodom and Gomorrah story, serve as the warnings to all of us, as the impending judgment that, that will come in the future when Jesus returns. You know, I am a product of modernity as well and product of this culture. I hate talking about judgment. I do. I'd rather talk about God's love for us, uh, uh, for us all. But it's just that this text and the Bible is relentless in their warnings against judgment. In fact, you know, people talk about love of Jesus all the time, but Jesus was more than any other person talked about God's judgment. This, this is coming from Jesus himself. The warning is clear. Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. And we should know that his judgment will be a perfect, just 
just judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah was fit for the fire and brimstone that was to come. And on that last day, the punishment that will be meted out to all of us will be just and it will be right. And we will not be able to say, you are an unjust judge. He meets every criteria of being the righteous judge. And there will be a judgment. And it will be horrible. Well, as uh, he warns, um, uh, well, as the man comes to the house, Lot um, tries to defend them, but they try to uh, break down the door, don't they? they? And the angels had enough. So they pull Lot back, strikes the mob blind, and tells Lot's family to get out of there. In verse 13, sorry, this is going back to Genesis again. In verse 13, we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. The fact that there are people who laugh at this is actually not that surprising. Remember, when warned, the son-in-laws laugh at the prospect. They think that Lot is joking. That's understandable for people who don't know God. What is so hard to understand to me is how slow and difficult Lot is. How he doesn't seem to want to get out of Sodom. In fact, the whole family seems to resist um, this rescue. That It seems like they prefer living in Sodom. So, the angels announce this judgment. And Lot's family then have all night to think about it. But now it's dawn in verse 15. As the sun's rising, rising, the angels urge them to get out. Hurry and get out or you'll be swept away as the city is punished. And shockingly, this is how Lot reacts in verse 16. So look at the first two, two lines there. He hesitates. In a different translation, he lingers. He lingers on. So angels have to take drastic action, just like a mother would with her, uh, with her children. They, he, they, they, they grab um, uh, Lot's hand, Lot's wife's hand, Lot's kid's hand, and they drag them outside into safety. And I've heard some sermons describing Lot as righteous, uh, a righteous man. And in fact, I mean, uh, there is some sense Lot is a righteous man because he has this faith in God. But that is definitely not his character. His character as a person is not righteous. The reason for this rescue is important. And at the end of verse six, 16, God gives us that, that, that reason. He led them safety, safely out, out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. It wasn't because Lot was good in any way. It was because God is merciful to them. And that is actually a message to all of us. But the story gets worse. Now that they're out of the city, angels instruct Lot to flee to the mountains. They say, don't look back, go up to the mountains. Because if you look back, if you linger on, you might not make it. They say, and Lot's response to this is also shocking. Verse 17. No, please, you've saved my life, but I can't go to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me. 
It's amazing, isn't it? He just was let out. God says, I'm going to bring fire from heaven. Go flee to the mountains. And Lot says, no. This will kill me. Look, this is, he, he, he continues. Look, here is a town near enough to run to. It's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? He bargains with God. He negotiates. Lot has become a city dweller. He doesn't like the thought of going up to a mountain. At the heart of the request is the fact that Lot has gotten so used to living in the city. Life in Sodom, he wants a smaller city. Maybe less glamorous, perhaps less sinful maybe than Sodom, but somewhat like Sodom. The evil city has become a part of him, his life. And he has difficulty leaving it. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Zor means small. And what he's asking is, could I have this very small thing? Could you grant me this just small request? And I can see these divine or angelic eyes rolling as they say this, they respond to him in verse 21. Very well, I will grant this request too. Well, we had three baptisms um, a couple of weeks ago. And one passage that I always go over with the baptismal candidates is taken from Luke chapter 14 later on and about the cost of discipleship. Jesus says to his disciples, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Anyone who loves his father and mother Anyone who loves anything in this world loves more than him. Any, any, anyone whose love for him um, against that everything pales in comparison, everything looks like hate, is not worthy to be my disciple, Jesus says. And perhaps more appropriately, Jesus in Luke 9, uh, 62 says, No one who puts his hand to plow and look back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. We are not to leave anything. We're to leave everything. Well, we're not to leave. Um, we're to leave behind everything. Pick up the cross and follow Jesus. We're not to look behind. And on the surface, Lot might have seemed like a good man. It was easy for Lot, perhaps, to be in the city and not be involved in the terrible things that went on in the city, like this homosexual gang rape. I'm sure he refrained from all kinds of other evil things too. But while he lived in the city, the subtle things crept up upon him. He became so much part of the city that, first of all, his judgment is impaired, but also he's re- he becomes a reluctant lever, reluctant receiver of God's salvation. The question to ask ourselves is, To what things are we attached to? Do we find hard to leave behind? What part of this world has become so part of you that you cling to it? That as God is saying, flee from all of it, what are the things that you try to negotiate with God? God, maybe I could have this thing. It's very small, isn't it? The things that you are saying... Could I have this little thing? 
They might be sinful things, and you might know them, and you don't want to leave. But for the most part, what we have a hard time leaving behind are the subtle things. I read a preacher talking about uh, subtle idols that creep up on, on our lives that has probably a bigger grip than ostensibly sinful things in our lives. He identifies, first of all, control as one of people's idols. The, the fact that we have to be in control of everything. And if, if you fear loss of control and uncertainty, then that is probably your, uh, your idol, that you, you, the thing that you don't want to leave behind. Approval is second. And you know that you have this idol if you, your greatest nightmare is rejection. Approval from other people, approval from our colleagues, approval from our friends and family. Comfort is another one. And this is probably Lot's, Lot's idol, the thing that he found uh, difficult to leave behind. And it's actually mine as well. I want to be comfortable. Fourthly, power. If you know, you, you know you have this um, as an idol, if your greatest nightmare is humiliation. Often we talk, uh, we, we're reluctant to walk away in the way that God wants us to walk away because these subtle things have crept up in our lives and have become a part of us. But, isn't it still amazing how God saves Lot? God saves sinners like Lot. We're all reluctant leavers and receivers of this salvation. Even those who are reluctant to save, God pries their hand. God takes their hand and, and leads them into salvation. When he hesitated, the men gra- uh, grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them to safety, safety out of the city because the Lord was merciful to them. The Lord is merciful to all of us. We should note, though, we didn't read this passage but, uh, part, but in verse 30, if you look down to verse 30, at the end of the story, Lot is out of Zor, that small city as well. He, is, he, he does end up up in the mountains. In the end, he does listen to God. In, in the end, he does find safety in leaving behind everything and following God. We don't have to be perfect. It might take us a long time. But we have to take the active steps of faith and respond to God's call. Only there can we find complete safety. And there does seem to, I want to point to this kind of regret that is actually deadly. As the judgment is happening, as the Lord rained down this fire and brimstone from heaven, Lot's wife looks back. The angel specifically said, do not look back and do not hesitate. But Lot's wife looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt, becomes a warning for all of us. And this isn't an accidental uh, glimpse. You see how Abraham looks toward Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 28. There's nothing wrong with looking. It's the same word. But what Lot's wife did was much worse even as the heavens are spewing fire and brimstone, Lot's wife looks back longingly towards Sodom and Gomorrah. She feels sad for the destruction of all the things that she has in the city. The lifestyle that she had in the city. 
as she leaves behind, she looks back longingly and thinks, "Ah, I wish I could have that back." It's as if she hasn't left at all, and as she longs to be part of that city, she takes the judgment that is part of that city. She becomes a pillar of salt, a place where nothing living can grow ever again. And I'm sure, sadly, there are some of us who are like Lot's wife here as well. Our bodies are here on Sundays. We might be doing all the right things, good things, helpful things, but it's as if we have not left the world at all. We look longingly toward the, towards the world and wish that we were a part of it. Our bodies are here, but our minds are somewhere else. Following Jesus is a motion that we go through not an active pursuit of God. Remember the Luke's passage where Jesus likened the second coming to the likes of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that passage ends with, with, with this in Luke chapter 17, verse 33. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Leave everything, brothers and sisters, and follow Jesus. You will lose your life, but at the end, you will gain the only life that's worth living. I used to run uh, cross-country when I was in high school, once again. I was a bit bit skinny and lanky. I wasn't... uh, uh, my, one of my biggest weaknesses in running this was uh, in the end, because everybody sprinted the end. And, you know, guys who are more bulky and more muscles, muscular, could run the sprint faster. So I wasn't good at finishing, but I knew one thing for sure. That as you sprint, you do not look left. You do not look right. You certainly do not look back. You'll fall behind And that's what you do when you sprint, when you're in a hurry, when the time's urgent. You keep your head down and you run as fast as you can. And may that be the picture that we run this race that God has given us, that we flee from desires of this world and run towards Jesus to gain the only life that's worth living. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the warning of Noah and the flood. We thank you for the warning of Sodom and Gomorrah. We thank you for the rescue, the, the, your, your active pursuit of all of us and the rescue that we receive. And we pray that as, we, as people who have received the salvation, that we will set our eyes on you and you alone and live all of our lives living for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.